You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 461 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. It's the last day of August this year. It'll come around again, Lord willing. But today we're going to talk about reading Thomas Aquinas, killer robot conspiracy theories, the trouble with reading lots of books, also, a little bit about Jordan B. Cooper touching on uh, Michael Heiser's theory of the Nephilim and the supernatural view of the uh, Old Testament authors and recipients of the Law and the Prophets and the wisdom literature, etc., etc. And lastly, we'll finish off going into some of the latest about the FBI agent who convinced the agency to go after Trump and also to not go after uh, Hunter Biden, all of that and more in this episode. But first of all, some fun stuff. Uh, Killer robot conspiracy theories. (laughs) So a little bit of backstory here. I'm getting back into doing reaction videos on YouTube and I'm having fun with that. It's a different medium. My kids enjoy them. I think other people enjoy them. I at least enjoy doing them. But one of the shorts I reacted to yesterday after I got home from work was of what looked like some kind of a press conference. And it was this lady announcing that four military robots in Japan had just recently killed 29 people in a lab. And... As promised in my YouTube reaction video, I looked this one up because it just didn't seem it didn't seem totally legit. Uh, some of the wording, some of the language, you know, talking about you know shooting everyone with metal bullets. It's like, well, what other, what other kind of bullets are there? I guess it could be Nerf bullets. You know that if I was going to make a killer robot and I was in a testing phase, I feel like I would give the uh, killer robot, a Nerf gun for starters. Let's see how they do with that (laughs) while we're working out the safety issues. But uh, I guess that's neither here nor there. It just struck me funny. You can go and check out my reaction video to see my genuine, honest reaction to all that business. But uh, metal bullets (laughs) supposedly killed 29 people. And then one of the robots, which the people at the lab had dismantled, you know, basically got reassembled by the other robots. And then also one of the robots was trying to connect to a satellite out in orbit to figure out how to make itself even stronger before they finally shut it down. And all of this feeds back into Elon Musk warning us about AI and uh, what it could be actually is it could be uh, a very subtle dig at Elon Musk that we're going to highlight this. We're going to make it go viral. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, all I know is <clears throat> I looked it up, as I promised, and uh, I found an article from The Oregonian in a piece by Douglas Perry from 2018 in which he names the woman in question from the short. Uh, her name is Linda Moulton Howe. She has a background in journalism, graduated from Stanford, was a former Miss Idaho, and won awards for her work at local TV stations in Denver, Atlanta, and Boston in the 1970s and 1980s. Now, according to Douglas Perry, she's one of the words, uh, one, one of the world's uh, leading investigators of UFOs and conspiracy theories. And really, the not-so-subtle insinuation from the piece in The Oregonian is that she got pranked on this whole story about the killer robots in Japan. Someone was claiming to be at the CIA 
and called her up and said, hey, this just happened and uh, we're all in a lot of trouble. And that could be, but also it could be that somebody was just pranking her. Uh, so whatever you do with that, there you go. That's uh, a little bit of the backstory on that. Not to say that uh, we're not trying to develop killer robots. I think the world's leading militaries are definitely trying to figure out how to get autonomous warriors, uh, you know, robot warriors onto the battlefield. I think the U.S. and uh, China, for instance, are definitely working on that. Read AI Superpowers, actually, by Kung Fu Lee. I'm sorry, Kai Fu Lee. Kai Fu Lee. Uh, <laughs> read AI Superpowers. Kai Fu Lee was a bigwig with Google, China, and also uh, very much a advocate for the Chinese Communist Party. Kind of a, hey, you know what? Who says? Who says with regards to the ethics of China hacking Western corporations and stealing trade secrets, stealing uh, you know, government secrets? You know, who says we can't do that? Who says we have to respect intellectual property? It's the Wild West over here, and we're going to beat the socks off of uh, the U.S. in our development of AI. Read Kai-Fu Lee. He is not mysterious about the fact that AI is a major proponent in the future of warfare. Asymmetrical warfare in our day is not going to be probably so much of the carpet bombing uh, like in World War II, carpet bombing of cities and industrial centers. It's probably going to be a whole bunch of hackers working for the military of this or that government jumping in and taking out your uh, power grid or taking out your factory or taking out your defense systems. It's probably going to be more like that. But if the AI is developed to a certain point, they're going to have a whole bunch of flying drones and whatnot armed with various weapons, uh, you know, drones of various sizes armed with various types of weapons, depending on the application. And it won't be a question of did the soldier obey orders? Are they fit for duty? Are they doing what they're told? Do they agree with the mission? It'll be whoever you need uh, to, you know, get around ethical quandaries, having the control of the drones. So that's a thing. I know that's a thing. That doesn't mean that 29 researchers in a Japanese lab were murdered by four uh, AI robots. AI. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean that is a true story, but uh, you know it's not based on nothing. We'll put it that way. In other news, something completely, totally different. Uh, I'm gradually making my way through Thomas Aquinas and uh, Summa Theologica, Volume 1 on audiobook. How's that for a pat? Uh, uh, a pairing. How's that for a mashup? Uh, yesterday's reading, <laughs> uh, Aquinas was talking about eternity and time and whether God exists in eternity and whether God is the only eternal being. And here's a mind-blowing idea for you. God is his own eternity. So God is not subject to eternity as if eternity is something that exists outside of God Eternity is something which exists in God because God is his own eternity. What does that mean? What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't fully know because uh, as the Athanasian Creed says, we believe in uh, one God, incomprehensible, uncomprehensible, the Father, uncomprehensible, uh, the Son, uncomprehensible, uncomprehensible, incomprehensible however you say it, uh, we can't fully understand him. That's the big idea. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we believe each one of them is ultimately only fully knowable by the Godhead. God knows himself. He knows who he is. I am that I am, he tells Moses uh, to say who had sent him when he goes to Pharaoh and he goes to the people of Israel to say, let my people go or come on guys, pack your things. We're going to blow this popsicle stand. You know, like I am that I am. God is self-existent and he is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover. And so for eternity to exist within God and for various passages, which I had never really thought of in these terms, 
that Aquinas brings up, he references, to say that we are partakers of eternity with God. Uh, that is to say, we are eternal beings. Eternal torment is promised for those who are uh, rebels against God and who are not reconciled through the blood of the Lamb, the only begotten Son of the Father, Jesus Christ. And so God is not all by his lonesome in eternity, but it, rather eternity is in him. And there's a mystery to it. Uh, what does all this mean? I don't fully know, but that's okay. Even not fully knowing, there are useful ideas to contemplate, to meditate on, to be humbled by even. And it's kind of like Edmund Burke says in his philosophical treatise on philosophical inquiry into the nature of the sublime and beautiful. Even if at the other end of it, you don't come out fully comprehending beauty and what is sublime, you will at least have more humility approaching the subject. At a minimum, we will all be a little more humble, uh, realizing that there's a depth here that is God-made, God-ordained, and good, and it's good for us to be humble as well. But I was telling my friends Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton about reading Aquinas on Friday. We had our quarterly board of directors meeting for the Reformed Conservative and one comment, I can't remember if it was made by one of them or if I picked it up on a video of Carl Truman explaining why we should read Aquinas. Either way, Thomas Aquinas is said to be the last of the great medieval scholars with regards to theology. And I think that is to say Aquinas is held to be representative of the best the medieval mind produced regarding God. Whereas theology was regarded up until the Enlightenment, as the queen of the sciences, I think that's saying quite a lot. You know, when theology was regarded as the queen of the sciences, Aquinas really is the guy who brings it all together for us. And that's what Summa Theologica is. It's basically a textbook on theology. Hey, you need to know theology? Here, read Aquinas. It's going to take you a minute, but that's all right. On the other end, you'll understand what we have come to uh, in the way of theology so far. But so far, I can say this. I can say I'm, I'm a long ways from being uh, through Summa Theologica, but I really am very impressed with how rigorous and thorough Aquinas is in Summa Theologica. That's not to say I agree with everything he had to say. It is to say I think reading him is giving me a lot of high-protein food for thought, if you will. Whether you agree with him or not, whether I agree with him or not, on every little detail, on every little point, whether or not we even know always what to make of him, this is definitely not fluff and stuff, but it is really good mental exercise. So there you go. In a related vein, let's talk about the trouble with reading lots of books. And let's talk about the trouble with reading books like Summa Theologica. You know, I was thinking about this quote, and I don't remember who said it, but Os Guinness relate it in the Magna Carta of Humanity or A Free People's Suicide, one of the two, which I read in the past year. Those were two books that I read out of the 52 that I finished, one for every week of the year. He was talking about someone in the early modern era making the jest or the passing remark that we know so much more than the ancients did. We know so much more in the modern era than the ancients did. And the response, I, I need to find the quote. I was trying to find it and I kept pulling up Donald Rumsfeld for some reason. And I know it's not Donald Rumsfeld that said it, uh, but the response was yes. And they are what we know, right? So one guy says, we know so much more than the ancients. And the other guy responds, yes. And they are that which we know. And I love that. I love that sentiment. They are what we know. But unfortunately, the frank truth is that many folks find this pointless. They are more content to live hand to mouth, uh, you know, kind of in, in an intellectual equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. He who does not avail himself to 3,000 years is living hand to mouth. But a lot of folk are content with that. And when they don't find it pointless, they feel threatened by it and they react with hostility. Besides that, another byproduct of reading so much, besides 
you know, being kind of waved off or ignored or met with hostility is that you talk funny, right? You, you talk funny and you think funny when you read deeply and broadly works of history and philosophy and theology and politics. You talk funny and you think funny compared with the people around you. Reading a lot of books when most people don't cultivate their minds or inform their opinions that way makes you stick out. And another problem that goes along with that is what if nobody wants to hear it? Then what? You just invested all this time and attention and energy trying to acquire knowledge and with knowledge, understanding, and to organize the information in a way that would be useful. What if nobody wants to hear it? Then what? And I think back to when I was a kid and on through my teenage years and into my 20s, I watched a lot of movies. And back when I watched a lot of movies, I'd pick up on great lines of dialogue. And for the same reason I do well with audiobooks, I could start talking in quotes from movies after watching a movie just once because those quotes, that dialogue, it was just up there all of a sudden and part of my personal lexicon. And the trouble, I think, with reading a lot of books when others aren't is that they don't pick up on the reference and that makes them feel dumb. I think that's a big part of it. I think that's part of why a lot of people say, ah, you know what, this is pointless. I don't have time or I'm not interested or I don't know where to start or I don't care to. And that's really the big reason why their brains are just, you know, ah, get out of here with that. I don't want to hear it. And depending on the context, if you're in a debate and you have the receipts on where ideas come from and you hear those ideas being communicated and you know the response and you know the outcome when these ideas have been tried, it's not theory alone. It's also you know something that's been brought into actuality by people acting on these ideas. You can get a lot of hostility sometimes when people don't want to do the research to figure out a, are you bluffing them? <laughs> you know, you, you cite all these books. Did you actually read them? You know, uh, or B, if you're right, then what, right? Do they now have to just think whatever you tell them to think and take your word for it? Well, that's not so good, clearly. But the point of referencing or quoting books shouldn't be to make people feel dumb. Let's just say that. Let's just get that out of the way. The point of referencing books or quoting books, telling people to read great books should not be to make people feel dumb any more than referencing and quoting movies and TV shows is. I've gotten in trouble for that latter uh, habit a time or two where I watch all these movies in my childhood, and teenage years, and 20s, not so much in recent years, but but still, you know, we go back and we watch some of the movies that I remember being Great. Sometimes I remember them being greater than they actually were. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I don't remember some objectionable content that was in them. And then my kids are like, Dad, like what? Um, so that's fun. But I'll remember lines of dialogue and then I'll quote a movie. And then I'll see a blank stare on somebody's face and I'll say, do you know what that's from? And they'll say, if they have the blank stare on their face, blank look on their face. No, I don't. And I'll say, oh, it's from this movie. And they'll say very often either, oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that now. Or B, they'll say, I've never seen it. And I'll say, what? <laughs> and it's totally genuine. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to make anybody feel dumb or uncultured or anything like that. But I'll say, what? You've never seen that movie? Oh. <gasps> You've got to watch that movie. Oh, it's so good. And da 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 And maybe it wasn't so good. It's just that line of dialogue. That, that, that little bit of dialogue was really great. And that was the best thing in the movie. But, you know, the same goes with books. I'll say, hey, hey, have you ever read this? And I assume much more readily people have not read the books I'm reading. Uh, I assume that much more readily. I'm actually more surprised if somebody says, oh, yeah, I read that too. And I, I'm like, what? <laughs> It's an inversion of the whole movies and TV shows references thing. I say, well, yeah, what? Really? Oh, did you like it? What, what did you think? You know, and I'm just so excited to find a fellow traveler with regards to book reading. But the point shouldn't be any more with books than it is with movies and TV shows to make people feel dumb. Uh, but I will say, and I am very firm on this, if you're missing out, and if that's objectively true, and if you could, right, if you if 
you have a responsibility and you could equip yourself to be more capable of fulfilling that responsibility by reading this work and reading that work and reading this other work and engaging with the ideas being presented in a comprehensive way. And you choose not to, you say stubbornly, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. That's a waste of my time. I've got better things to do like watching movies, binge watching TV shows on Netflix. Uh, you know, when, when that's the answer, you know, I, that I put into a different category. I, I don't fault somebody for not having read all these books because there's a lot of books to read and I haven't read them all. And I know, I, I know it takes an investment of time, attention, energy, etc. But people who don't read it all at all, uh, and are stubborn about that and say, I'm not going to read. I don't want to read. I don't want to read a physical book. I don't want to listen to an audiobook. I don't know. I don't even want to, I don't even want to hear you tell me about the book. That I think is dumb. I, sorry, I'm not sorry. That I think is dumb. I think that is ignorant. I think that's ignorant and it's dangerous. And, uh, you know, at a bare minimum, we should say, if we're going to discuss these things, and some people have done the research and read, let's avail themselves. Uh, let, let's, let's avail ourselves of them. Uh, I want to do that. If somebody has read something I haven't read, I want to hear all about it. And either A, I want to go read it as well if it's a really great if it's as good a book as they say if it's really great i want to go read it or at a minimum in the meantime i want to get a better understanding of who they are what they got out of the book even if i don't have time to read it yet i can only read so many books at one time there's a list of books that have been recommended to me which i hope to get to at some point and maybe it'll just be context hey you know this big question came up and i ah i remember so and so was telling me this book is about that and it's really well written. I'll go read that book now. You know, maybe that'll be all the better that I waited. But you know, here's here's a couple of problems though. You know, here here are a couple of problems I'm grappling with and it's been bumming me out. I'll just be honest. <clears throat> if you don't want to be some kind of a recluse who keeps to himself or sits around the house all the time waiting for the next chance to talk with other people who are well read, you might find yourself on the horns of a dilemma. In our day, in in the United States of America, in the year 2022, with Neil Postman's warnings uh, largely unheeded, I would say, for the past 40 years, you start talking about the books you're reading and you're met with hostility because people feel threatened or else you're met with indifference because people don't see a value in it and they think you're an odd duck for believing otherwise. All the more, the more you invest yourself, do you give up on reading books to fit in? Or do you keep on reading books, but secret your knowledge and insights for just yourself and a select few? If you do that, how soon before you're accused of being an elitist or a snob? It might be a self-preservation tactic, but at a certain point, it has its own attendant risks if you're just keeping all these things to yourself. And if you're very quiet, right? If you're very quiet, people might uh, for a time say, Ah, yes, he's very wise. You know, like Proverbs says, even a fool when he keeps silent is esteemed wise. <laughs> As my mother used to quote Proverbs to me all the time, better to be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. But let's suppose you actually do know a thing or two and you understand a thing or two and you could say more than you're saying, but present company makes you a little leery because you're not sure if you're going to be rewarded or punished. You're not sure if the people who get the correction or the additional thought are going to feel threatened or they're going to write you off as somebody who wastes a lot of you know, your own time and, and their time as well. Alternatively, do you just stubbornly keep on? You, you read and you talk about great books and you poke and prod the rest of humanity in your vicinity to join you in this quest to get knowledge and understanding like Proverbs talks about. It is biblical, by the way. This is a very biblical thing, but you have to read the Bible in order to see the benefit. So, you know, it might be, <laughs> you got to start somewhere, uh, getting knowledge, getting understanding, getting wisdom, getting insight from the scriptures first and foremost, from God himself first and foremost, then subsequently you can make sense of man. If you go this route, you just stubbornly keep on prodding the people in your vicinity, hey, 
read this book. Hey, read this book. Hey, let me tell you about this book I just read. Hey, let me push back a little bit on the claim you just made because I don't think that's all there is to it. I think there's a little more. And uh, wait, hold on. Do you know where the idea you just communicated comes from? Let me tell you a thing or two. You know, if you do that, you might not win friends and influence people in our day and age. Let me just tell you, I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. You might not be winning friends and influencing people. And yet, on the other hand, it seems to me as though the way to go about it is key. I think this latter option uh, should be part of our approach, maybe the former as well. And maybe you just alternate and you, you know, pay close attention. What kind of people am I dealing with? You know, if you correct a fool, he will hate you for it. Proverbs says, if you correct a wise man, he will thank you because he will become even more wise. So you kind of pay attention. You pay attention to, am I surrounded by fools? Am I surrounded by idiots? <laughs> As Scar says, yeah, and the Lion King, there's a movie quote for you. Yeah, I'm surrounded by idiots. Yeah, you know, do you pay attention for that? And on the other hand, do you pay attention for, is there some wisdom here? And, you know, it's not all or nothing, but this person has some wisdom and I will correct them to the extent that I think they're up for it. This person has a little bit of folly. There's a fly in the ointment. They have a little bit of folly here and I'm going to be careful and I'm going to approach this cautiously and tactfully. You know, maybe I should read uh, Dale Carnegie about this, how to win friends and influence people. I don't know. But there is more. And it's this. If other people start reading books and they don't know how to read deeply for meaning or to critique without destroying a book and saying there's nothing worthwhile in it. If I can criticize this, ah, you know, I might as well just burn it, right? We'll, we'll start a bonfire and just burn all the books because they've all got negative stuff in them. They've all got objectionable bits. If you start as somebody who reads more often and you read deeply for meaning and you read multiple books from multiple different perspectives that are cross-examining the perspectives of one another, you then bring that to other people who are just getting started on reading and they don't read that way. And I don't say this to be rude or anything like that, but they read more superficially and more sentimentally. <clears throat> you start picking at what they're reading and how, and there again, they will feel threatened and, uh, and they might feel discouraged. So you want to be careful about that. You, you really do. Someone I've been watching and listening to recently who I think does this well, at least from what I've seen, what I've heard, uh, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper. Cooper is a youngish, probably about my age, Lutheran minister who has his own podcast, his own YouTube channel. You should definitely go check it out. He's got a lot of content out. And uh, Justin Sinner, Just and Sinner, uh, I believe is the name of his podcast. But he talks about theology and church history. My neighbor, Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez, recently sent me several videos, for instance, of Cooper talking about Michael Heiser. And I've just this morning finished the first one examining Heiser's methodology in The Unseen Realm and Supernatural, among other works. I've read both of those two books. I really enjoyed them, read them several years ago, really enjoyed them. But I so appreciate the way Cooper handles the subject. He works through the details of what specifically in Heiser's reasoning, presuppositions, tradition, order of operations, and assumptions causes men like Heiser and men like Cooper to come to different conclusions about angels and demons and gods in the Bible. So maybe, maybe, you know, we need to be listening more to voices like Dr. Jordan B. Cooper's. Uh, maybe that would be as good or better than reading Dale Carnegie and How to Win Friends and Influence Peoples. But as an aside, not much an aside, uh, can I just say, I agree with several of Cooper's concerns about Heiser's methodology. I shared those concerns before I watched Cooper's video. Uh, not just Heiser's methodology, Cooper's right to point out, John Walton has a very similar way of approaching the biblical text, making perhaps too much. And it's good to include, and Cooper says this, and I agree with it totally, it's good to include Near Eastern, Mesopotamian, uh, you know, context as we try and understand how did 
the authors, human authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but human authors all the same, how did they understand the supernatural? And what can we understand of the way they would have perceived these things based on cultural context, regional, cultural, historical context? It's good to factor that in, but the dose makes the poison and it's like PEMDAS. The order of operations makes a big difference on whether you come out with the right answer. I did not like John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1, by the way. Did not like it. Uh, I think it's odd in some places. And I, I, don't, like his, I don't like his reasoning. Uh, I like Michael Heiser's much, much better. Much, much better. But at the same time, I freely confess, I agree with many of Heiser's conclusions about the competing religions in the world compared to relative to the worship of Yahweh God. Uh, those competing religions are not just demonic in some kind of a psychological sense or in some kind of a fuzzy, obscure, uh, intangible sense, which, you know, that seems to me to be the preference of modern Christians and, and maybe not just modern Christians, but you know, in particular modern Christians favor this view that when we say demonic, we're really talking you know, in more of a fuzzy sense, if you will, not really very tangibly, not literally. You know, and, and I think I think there's a relationship between having that fuzzy view of the supernatural uh, with regards to the demonic to where you know we, we assume things that the positivists claim that primitive man, you know, didn't have science, didn't have telescopes and microscopes and all the scopes. And therefore he just said, well, the gods did it right here. You, you, you hear rumbling in the mountains and you're a primitive man. According to the positivists, you say, ah, it's the gods. You know, they're rearranging furniture up there on the mountains. Cause that's their mountain, you know, Mount, Mount Olympus, it, you know, that's their mountain. I hear rumbling up there. Zeus must be, you know, rearranging furniture. Uh, you know, whereas we, we with an evolutionary presupposition, we are so much more advanced and now we've got science and now we can say, ah, that's thunder and that's lightning. And the ancients didn't know what thunder and lightning were. They thought that was Zeus and that was Thor and, and whatnot. You know, I think there's a relationship between that way of approaching ancient mythology and also the way that actually... <laughs> John Walton uh, approaches Genesis one through three in our Old Testament, and I think it's not good in either case. I, I think to some extent it's a package deal because the presuppositions are problematic and, and troublesome. And it's not to say that the people who hold to those views, in some limited sense, uh, have nothing to go on. But it is to say I think they're incorrect. I think Heiser's more correct in saying the demonic here is personal, is more tangible. These are demons. Like the gods of the ancient peoples were demons. And we know that uh, in the case of God's angels, you know, take the story of Lot and his family being rescued from Sodom, kind of, sort of, most, you know, mostly for the most part. At least, you know, Lot and his daughters got out. But did, <laughs> did all of the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, get out of his daughters? It does not seem so. Um, you know, it, it seems to me as though in that story, you've got angels who show up in Sodom to get Lot and his family out and the men of the town perceive them as being men. And so also I think you can have the demonic showing up, manifesting itself in ancient history in particular, and maybe even on up to the present as uh, human form, you know, uh, mankind is made a little lower than the angels. And yet when angels show up, they very often show up looking like men and they might be beautiful. They might be handsome. They might be very impressive, you know, specimens, uh, of what we would think a man should look like. And it's not, it's not at all obvious to me that there's something wrong with saying, Fallen angels came to earth to rule and to reign as part of their ongoing rebellion against the most high God. That's not 
polytheism in the sense that we're affirming them and worshiping them. No, we're regarding them as hostile enemies, enemies of us, enemies of God's people, more to the point, enemies of the Most High God. And I, I think I think that's an intuitive reading. I agree with Heiser's uh, you know, view. That's essentially Heiser's view. My Western literature professor at Cedarville, that was his view as well. Genesis 6, when it talks about the sons of God, we should interpret what sons of God means in that context uh, along the lines of what Job says and along the lines of ancient mythology to some extent. But on the other hand, to say these gods are no gods at all, that's fine. I take the meaning of those concerned about embracing polytheism. It's also in the scriptures that they are no gods at all. The gods of the nations are no gods at all. But I'll pick up on something my oldest son said after we recently watched the movie 300. I think, as he said, something like Xerxes being preternaturally tall and strong and godlike in the film adaptation of Frank Miller's graphic novel, I think that crops up all over the ancient world and not for no reason. And I think embracing that rather than saying it was all made up gives a great deal more concrete accountability from a spiritual standpoint to the ancient peoples who did worship those um, you know, kings and rulers and, and strong men as gods. Uh, I think it also gives a great deal more dignity to our ancestors and, and, and to the record of antiquity. Uh, also, one last thought on this. I would appeal to Augustine <laughs> on this point. <laughs> My reading of Augustine, City of God, as I remember it, puts Augustine and I solidly on the same side of this question over and against the positivist presupposition that our ancestors were all just very primitive and irrational. Augustine and I are on the same page here. I came to this conclusion independent of, before reading, outside of uh, reading Augustine, and then I read Augustine, and I'm like, oh, hey, great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but moving on, last but not least, I want to talk with you about this top FBI agent, Timothy uh, Tybalt, resigning. That was a big, big story yesterday. And I think it helps me to make some closing points here that we would consider the story of this top FBI agent resigning, not just resigning, but being escorted from the building on Monday. Joel Abbott over at notthebee.com posted up a excellent article. I'll throw a link in the description for this episode. You can go check it out yourself. Let's talk about the top FBI agent with anti-Trump tweets who convinced the agency to investigate Trump and just resigned after allegations that he shielded Hunter Biden from scrutiny. And I quote, Timothy Tybalt was a leading special agent at the FBI who helped oversee the investigation into Hunter Biden and convinced FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate a former sitting president of the United States that he didn't like. I say was because he was escorted out of the bureau offices by management on Monday after resigning last week. Now, that's a curious thing. He was escorted out on Monday. What was he doing there Monday? I don't know. But it is curious that they escorted him from the building and that he resigned last week. Was he supposed to be in the building? Did they invite him in for a chat? Were they asking him some questions? I don't know. James A. Gagliano with a blue check tweeted out, and I, uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> Joel Abbott and everyone else who puts these tweets in their uh, news story so I can actually read them because I'm still not able to get into my Twitter after clapping back at uh, <laughs> Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee, Democrat from Tennessee, former uh, candidate for the House of Representatives, failed candidate multiple times. Uh, James A. Gagliano tweets out on August 29th, a top FBI agent, Timothy Tybalt, 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 uh, at the Washington field office reportedly resigned from his post last week after facing intense scrutiny over allegations he helped shield Hunter Biden from criminal investigations into his laptop and business dealings. And what's interesting, too, is that 
Mark Zuckerberg, founder, CEO of Facebook, it just came out and said basically they were contacted by the FBI and told that the Hunter Biden laptop story in the run-up to the 2020 election was Russian disinformation. That's an important detail here. Uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. What is driving all of this to come out right now? What's driving this guy resigning, uh, retiring, whatever you want to call it? What's driving that right now as we're coming up very close uh, to the midterm elections, Republicans taking the House and the Senate back, hopefully, from our lips to God's ears, in my opinion. Um, you know, is is this the lead up to some accountability from our legislative branch at the federal level? Uh, it would seem so. It would seem so. It would seem that Mark Zuckerberg is pointing a finger at the FBI and saying, essentially, the FBI pressured us to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. And and the Hunter Biden laptop story, if you don't know, is huge. There's all kinds of criminal activity, which is documented on Hunter Biden's laptop that implicates not just him, but the extended Biden family, including especially his father, who was candidate uh, for the Democrats in 2020 for president is now our current president. If you haven't noticed, you know, implicating the Biden family, Hunter and Joe Biden in corruption, in taking money and bribes from hostile regimes, China, Russia, for instance, taking money, uh, you know, essentially laundering money in exchange for influence with our government, with the highest level of the executive branch, the president of the United States, the White House, uh, that story being suppressed as Russian misinformation, if in fact it wasn't. And and here's the here's a question for you. You know, if it turns out that the laptop's real, if that's the case, uh, why on earth would Russia want that to get out? You would think if Russia is putting money into the pocket of Joe Biden via his son and other proxies, if the Chinese Communist Party is putting money into Joe Biden's pocket via his son and other proxies, why would Russia and China want that to get out? Uh, they they wouldn't, one would imagine, except to maybe, you know, spread chaos. Sure. But when the special agent at the FBI is talking the FBI and the DOJ into going after Trump and at the same time is trying to shield Joe Biden, by extension, when he is shielding Hunter Biden, that's huge. That's huge. Uh, scrolling down here a little bit in the Not to Be piece from Joel Abbott, there's more, and I quote, Tybalt used his position to juice domestic extremism stats because those God-fearing moms at school board meetings have to be stopped from wrong think, uh, wrong think rather, at all costs. He had to juice the stats so that the FBI and the DOJ could start going after moms and dads going to school board meetings, complaining about their kids being turned into little commies and, you know, talked into changing their pronouns, changing their gender, changing their sex, you know, because moms and dads across the country were going to school board meetings, upset, angry. We had to juice the stats which is to say you fudge the numbers to make it look like it's a bigger problem. Domestic extremism from those opposed to the radical left indoctrinating their children are a, a huge threat. Let's put these parents on a domestic terrorist watch list. Let's investigate them. Let's create a chilling effect that silences those moms and dads. This is KGB type stuff here. Like this is not... This is this is un-American. This is un-American. It's corrupt uh, in the extreme. Joel Abbott continues. He also reportedly tried to oust unvaccinated agents because he was assuming they were Trump supporters. Uh, that's a big deal. You're going to purge the Federal Bureau of Investigation of people you think are Trump supporters or people you think 
you know, maybe don't vote Democrat, maybe don't vote for Joe Biden. Uh, that's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. If you're going to try and purge people who vote differently from you in a country that at least allegedly is still democratic and a republic, a nation of laws, not ruled by men, but ruled by laws in which representative government is a major part of our system. Checks and balances are a major part of our system. You're going to remove the checks and balances within the FBI and then weaponize the FBI against conservatives in office and in broader society. Everybody from the mom angry at her child being suicidal over radical gender theory being pushed on her. Everyone from the mom upset that her daughter is suicidal to the president of the United States from 2016 to 2020, you're going to weaponize the FBI against them after purging your rivals, your political rivals, people who vote differently than you you think. Joel Abbott continues, we haven't even gotten to the meat of the story yet, but I have to show you one more thing. Here's Tybalt in October. I'll just settle on that as the pronunciation. I think that's correct. Here's Tybalt in October 2020 as an agent involved in the Hunter Biden investigation who knew Hunter's laptop was real, talking about shutting down election fraud around the same time the FBI was contacting Facebook. And this just came from Mark Zuckerberg. Just came from Mark Zuckerberg. You don't believe me? <laughs> you should You should believe Mark Zuckerberg uh, on this point. This, this is the kind of thing you don't just make up. Just saying. Not when you're the CEO of Facebook, the founder of CEO. The founder of uh, of uh, Meta, you don't just make this up. The video, interestingly enough, he's got this in uh, square brackets. I uploaded the video here in case the FBI deletes it, its tweet. So the, the video was embedded in a tweet and Joel Abbott was concerned the FBI might just take that tweet down and then the video is gone. Uh, it, was, it looked as though it was a 57 second, 58 second, not a very long uh, video. I tried to click play to watch it and listen to it. You know, Tybalt, uh, assistant special agent in charge. I can see the preview on the video, but I clicked play and here's the error I got. There was a problem providing access to protected content. Error code 232403. Ooh. Ooh. So just to be clear, somebody was able to to go in and take this video down on the claim that it's protected content. Interesting. Very interesting. It was public. You know, once it's public, it's, it's really, you know, kind of dubious for you to try and pretend that this is some secret thing all of a sudden. That's sketchy. Super sketchy. Uh, Jeff Carlson tweeted out <clears throat> on August 29th, a lecture on election fraud from an agent who engaged in election fraud based on the date of this tweet. This was exactly the same time the FBI, likely Tebalt himself, directed Facebook to censor the Hunter laptop as Russian disinformation, despite knowing it was real. Twitter, I remember when I was on Twitter in 2020, Twitter not only took every uh, attempt to share the New York Post uh, article down <clears throat> from their platform, they also suspended the New York Post's Twitter account. And I tried. I just, it was an experiment. I was reading that you couldn't tweet the story. I tried to tweet it and I literally could not. Twitter literally would not let me because they were saying it was disinformation, Russian disinformation, election interference. I. Can't get into Twitter now, so I can't click play to see if this FBI Portland tweet uh, is the same video from above that says there was a problem providing access to protected content. Uh, all I see is the write-up from FBI Portland, blue check. What is the FBI doing to combat election fraud? ASAC, Timothy Tybalt, that ASAC stands for Assistant Special Agent in Charge, by the way, from FBI WFO talks about our role investigating federal election crimes, hashtag protect 2020. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Protect it for whom though? Hmm. So long and short of it, you know, what you have here is you have a plot, you have a conspiracy 
And this is the trouble. Going back to earlier things I was saying about killer robots from Japan and the Nephilim and Michael Heiser's view versus Jordan B. Cooper's view and you know, reading a lot of books. The problem with labeling people conspiracy theories is that sometimes very wealthy, powerful people conspire. That's part of how they get and remain wealthy and powerful. And it isn't even necessarily to say that conspiring is always a bad thing, but it is to say that there is something underhanded about plotting and scheming behind closed doors, potentially corrupting our political process uh, to the extreme, and then dismissing everybody who starts digging in to try and provide accountability to shed light on that, labeling them an extremist or threatening them with investigations and harassment from federal agents, up to and including the former president of the United States, and down to uh, the soccer mom who is upset, understandably, rightfully so, about her daughter being suicidal. That that's the that's the big idea here. It's it's a problem if we have conspirators at the highest levels in the FBI or DOJ or White House who are conspiring to fill their own pockets or to get and maintain absolute total power and control over every facet of our lives. In another news article this morning I was reading, it's talking about how the state of Virginia has to, by state law, they have to follow California's air regulatory board uh, standard and, and recent ruling that internal combustion engine vehicles will not be sellable by the year 2035. Virginia has to abide by that unless, and they should, unless uh, they overturn and repeal the law that was passed in recent years saying that they're just going to adopt whatever California standard is. You know, when we're getting down to basic access to food, water, money to buy a home, vehicles, transportation, information, we're, we're looking at repression of conservatives potentially with regards to the basic necessities of life. We're talking about a comprehensive siege of conservatives, harassment of conservatives by corrupt people in our own government. And, uh, and, and the idea that that could happen is very troubling, but it's kind of like reading books. Yes, it's going to take some work to dig in, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. And it doesn't mean just because you don't really especially want to, and you can think of better things you'd like to do with your time, more fun things you could, you would like to do with your time. It doesn't mean that you can afford not to. Basic necessities, wide scale, widespread, large scale uh, corruption in government is a big deal. And we have to recognize that there is a spiritual component to this. There's a theological component to this. There's a cultural component to this. There is a political component to this. And we've got to be able to think critically. We've got to be able to do our research. We've got to be able to discuss the findings of our researches. And it's not okay to just say, you know, the the most important thing to me is that I get mine. That's very short-sighted. And that can only get you so far. Read about the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, if you read Polybius, you'll read about the collapse of Greek civilization when men became disinterested in getting married, or if they got married, they had one or two kids. I'm I'm not making this up. Polybius writes about it. I can give you the quote if you want it, or you can go back and listen to my podcast episode uh, about reading Polybius's The Histories recently. Men, young men, gave up on getting married. And if they got married, they didn't want to have kids. And if they had kids, they wanted to have one or two. And if they had one or two, they really didn't want to raise them or pay any attention to them. And that was the collapse of Greek civilization. Rome, meanwhile, to Augustine's point in the city of God, did not collapse because Christians were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. Rome collapsed because Rome gave up on virtue. And what is it in our day? If you read P.T. Exeth's Battle for the American Mind, 
He's got the history of American public education. And this is how so many of us have been conditioned to think. Even if we weren't public schooled, the pressure is real to use the language of values and to not talk about virtue because virtue is objective. Values are subjective. Values are, you know, like the conversation I was having with my wife and kids last night at the dinner table. Values are a matter of taste. My kids asked me, dad, why do you hate cucumbers? I said, well, I don't hate them. I just, I don't like them. And it's okay for me to not like them. And if you like them, that's fine. And I said, you know what I hate even more than cucumbers though? If somebody makes me some food that's got cucumbers in it, I hate the idea of offending them, hurting their feelings by refusing to eat it. I don't hate cucumbers. I just don't like them. I wouldn't choose to eat them. Uh, actually, there are there are exceptions. There are some things made with cucumbers that I think are delicious. Uh, but I don't like cucumbers. Values over virtue is like debating whether or not cucumbers are good to eat. They're fine. They're fine. I don't like them. Oh, okay. But virtue has to do with the natural law. It has to do with God's law. It has to do with God being the one to whom all things belong. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so therefore, how then should we live? To quote Francis Schaeffer, quoting the scriptures, how then should we live? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time that has been allotted to us. But you can't do that in isolation. You're not supposed to do that in isolation. Increasingly, I would say that it's challenging to do that in community when it's hard to talk about difficult things that stress people out, that they don't really want to grapple with, and they get very upset if you critique where they're coming from based on knowledge. If you do the research, if you do the digging, you've got to also figure out how to share what you find out in a way that if people react badly to, you at least can have a good conscience about. That's my advice. That's the big idea. That's the that's the uh, bow I will tie up this episode with in conclusion. Safeguard your reputation. Do your research. Make sure you've got your facts straight. Be charitable. Be humble. Be gracious to people who disagree, especially if you can see how they would come to that conclusion. Hear them out. Learn something. But... That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. It's my last day off before I go back to seven days of systems integration. I've got some training to do. I'm independently studying ignition on my own, and uh, it's free. Induction, uh, what is it called? Inductive, actually, I think is what it is. Yeah, Inductive University by Inductive Automation. They're the ones that put out ignition. Uh, they've got all of the training for free to get a credential to be a systems integrator with Ignition. I have played around with it just a little bit, the software, and it's really, really, really cool. Uh, I'm making my way through. I'm not very, very far. I'm about 6% of the way through the coursework. But at the end of it, for I believe it's a 1000 bucks, I can pay to take the test and get licensed and I think that would be good. I think, you know, I have people I know who do systems integration uh, elsewhere in the country. They say, this is, you know, my friend Chad Cahoon says, this is what uh, everybody's trying to go to because it's very well put together and smart and it works well. And so I think given my experience so far and playing around with Ignition a little bit at work, uh, even just the trial version, it looks really, really cool. And actually, it's I think it's good for me to take this. I'm getting a better understanding of how some things with systems integration work, even with the systems that I work in, which right now are not ignition. So I've got that to work on today. Plus also, I've got to take my vehicle in to get emissions testing done or 2012 12-passenger uh, van needs emissions testing before I can renew registration. Also, my 15-year-old son, Josiah, needs to get over to the DMV about 1.30, I think, to get his learner's permit so that he can be driving here. Uh, shortly, he'll be licensed, I'm sure, no doubt. 
and uh, that's exciting also sobering (laughs) but that is to say i gotta run i'm out of time as always thank you for listening until next time god bless been listening to the garrett ashley mullet show on anchor fm for more content like what you just heard subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify also check out the garrett to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published as always you can reach me with any comments questions complaints objections or insights at garrett ashley mullet at protonmail.com